And Father, we praise you for this day. This is the day the Lord has made, and we have every reason to rejoice and be glad in it. And yet, uh, it's a sad day as well, as the cops will be leaving uh, for Uganda once again, and in all likelihood, we won't see them again for a while. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless their journey and bless their ministry. Lord, thank you for this dear couple and family. I pray, Father, that you would so move through them that others would come to Christ and you would move so in them that each of their children would come to Christ, that they would know the glory and the joy of belonging to Jesus. And so I thank you, Lord, for Damon and Jen and for the children, and we pray your blessing on them. Bless us now, Father, as we open the book and we hear from your word, by your spirit. Protect us from error, fill us with your truth. Conform us to the image of your Son, we pray, because we have gathered together in obedience to you to hear your word. I pray, Father, that we would be careful how we hear today, and that our hearing would lead to obedience and to worship. And may you be glorified in that as we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open your Bibles with me, turn to Psalm chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, we finished 1 Timothy And so that is behind us, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the Psalms. Today, we start with Psalm 1. I want to speak to you today about two ways to live, two ways to live. When you think about the Bible as a whole, you might kind of look at it and be tempted to think that that, uh, God's will for us must be very, very complicated. I mean, look at all these pages. I counted, looked at the back of my Bible, I've got 1,360 pages. I mean, that's a lot to learn, right? Um, when you start thinking about the Bible like that, you might find yourself being, feeling a little overwhelmed. But this morning, I want us to be collectively reminded that the Christian life really isn't all that complicated. Yes, there are some things that we need to do. There are attitudes we should have, but all of it's by the Spirit. And when you boil it all down, really, there's only two ways to live. I love simple <laughs> I love praying simple, I love counseling simple, I love the simple truths of Scripture that are so deep and so profound, and this is one of them. When you boil it all down, there are really only two ways to live. You can live in a way that's honoring to the Lord, pleasing to the Lord, or you can live in a way that provokes his censure and perhaps even his judgment. One way brings God's blessing, the other brings God's wrath. And one way leads to eternal life, the other leads to eternal judgment. Psalm chapter 1 stands as the appointed sentry guarding the entrance to the book of Psalms. You must have dealings with him, this first psalm, if you desire to enter the treasury of wisdom and worship that is the book of Psalms. If you desire to enter, you must come through Psalm chapter 1, because the truths of Psalm chapter 1 set up the rest of the Psalms. St. Jerome, who was the author of the original Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, uh, often said that the Holy Spirit, uh, the Psalms, Psalm 1 is the Holy Spirit's preface to the Psalter, and James Montgomery Boyce 
taught that Psalm 1 is the gateway to all the other psalms, and conversely, it may be argued that other psalms, all of the other psalms, are exposition of this, the first psalm. The text before us is short. It's only six verses. Doesn't mean it won't take us a while to get through, so don't get excited. But in it, God reveals profound and practical and essential truth about living in a manner that pleases the Lord and in a manner that brings us tremendous blessing, super abounding blessing as his people. Before we study it, however, why don't we do what we always do and honor God by reading it. Let's stand together and read Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. And you could probably quote it, but we have so many versions these days, we won't try. I'm reading from the ESV. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. The psalm before us this morning offers a profound lesson in contrasts. We will discover along the way that there are two distinct kinds of people. There are two alternate worldviews. There are two contrasting descriptions. And there are two different destinies in the end. Let's begin with the first and the one that we'll spend the most time on. The two distinct kinds of people. The reason there are only two ways to live is, frankly, there are only two kinds of people in God's eyes. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. Now, I know that um, some of us, when we hear things like that, it sounds pretty backward. Um, Nobody likes to be stereotyped. We certainly don't want to call other people wicked, and truth be told, we are uncomfortable calling ourselves righteous. But these are the two terms, and and not just the only two, but other synonyms here. Notice in verse 6 how the Holy Spirit lays down this ultimate contrast. It's kind of a summary to all that has gone before. The psalmist writes, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. And then the author of this psalm refers to the wicked three, three times in these six verses. And also brands them as sinners in verses 1 and 5, and also as scoffers in verse 1. And so, there are two kinds of people. There are the wicked, and there are the righteous. And you may think, boy, I just, I don't want to put myself in either one of those categories. And I don't want to put anybody else in either of those categories. And I get that. No one likes to be put in a category. No one likes to be profiled. And certainly there is a place for this kind of thinking that we we want to be fair, we want to be balanced, we want to be gracious, 
We don't want to exalt ourselves. We don't want to put down other people. There's a place for that. There is a place for that. But not here in Psalm 1. The problem for every honest Christian is that we all know deep in our hearts that there is much wickedness. I know that there is sin in my heart. Even though I've been made new, I've been washed, I've been cleansed, I've been sanctified and redeemed. And yet I know what the Apostle Paul knew in Romans chapter 7, that the things I want to do I find, you know, in in obedience to the law, the things I want to do I find myself not doing, and the things I really don't want to do, I I just, I don't ever want to sin again, and I find myself doing those things. Martin Luther called it simul justus et peccator, at the same time, justified and sinful. That's who we are. We are both justified and sinful. We desire to do what is good, but we find ourselves doing what we knew is wrong. Until we see Jesus face to face, sin is still with us. And so let's be honest. I mean, what honest person can seriously think that it would be appropriate to call himself righteous? God can call us that. And we know that's good theology. God calls us righteous based on the merits of Christ. But we hesitate to call ourselves righteous. It will repay us to to ask the question and answer it before we dive into this text. What is the definition? What is the definition of righteous compared to the definition of wicked? The difference must be profound because in the day of judgment, the righteous will stand and the wicked will perish. So what's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? How should we understand these two terms as monikers of of only two kinds of people in the world? Well, in order to understand that, I would invite you to turn with me to the right a little bit to Psalm 32, because what we see in Psalm 32 is indicative of how the Psalms are written, and a lot in the Old Testament is written relative to these two terms, and how we should think of ourselves, and how we should think of others. Psalm 32, and let's see if we can sort this thing out. We, we don't have time to study the whole Psalm, so let's make some pertinent observations. Verses 1 and 2. Let me read these. Psalm 32 is the masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is what? Forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This person is a righteous person. And then, in the next few verses, um, this is what we read. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And through the next verse, he talks about his experience of living in sin, living in an unrepentant way relative to his sin. And then we move on. Verses 3 through 5, and then we read in verse 5 these words. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is, new term, godly. You see, righteous, godly, speaking of the same person, let Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And I take that to mean prayer of confession. 
prayer of repentance. This is the godly sinner. It is the righteous sinner. And then look with me at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of, now here's the other term, the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So now we have faith, faith being the very ground and foundation of our forgiveness, our righteousness in Christ. And then he says, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, oh, and what does he call them? Righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Now, why is he righteous? He is righteous because his sins have been forgiven. This text makes no room for perfectionism. You don't get this righteousness in a legalistic manner. It is a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. It is extra nos. It comes to us from out there. It is, in, the reformers call it an alien righteousness. Not because it has antenna, but because it comes from outside of us. It is alien. And it must be given to us. Another way to say this, the way I like to say it, is there is, for salvation, there is a righteousness you desperately need, you don't have, and you cannot earn. So the question is, where do I get that righteousness? And the book of Romans answers, Christ for righteousness. But this is Old Testament. But isn't it amazing how we find the same thing? Not in its complete form, answering with Jesus Christ. It's leading that way. But in the Old Testament, we find all of the foundation stones that are building that doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this is what we see. Godly sinners, righteous sinners, obviously not because of perfectionism, but because they, by God's grace, do not have their sins counted to their account. They have been paid for. God's wrath has been propitiated on their behalf. And Christ will be the final culmination of that. So, beloved, this is Old Testament teaching on the doctrine of justification. Sinners are declared righteous. We call that justified or justification. We are justified by the grace of God through faith. So the difference between the righteous and the wicked is beginning to take shape now in our minds, I trust, in Psalm 1 and throughout the Psalms and the wicked, the difference between them is that the wicked love their sin, while the righteous hate their sin, as is evidenced by the fact that they confess their sin, which is evidence that they've already been forgiven from their sin. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is that one places all of their hope in God and the other, all others, place their hope in themselves or in something else. Hence, the very clear division, only two kinds of people. There are the righteous in God's sight, and there are the wicked. There are the righteous sinners who have been forgiven of all their sin, and there are the unrighteous wicked who say in their heart, 
there is no God. That's the message of the book of Psalms. And the repeated reframe is, be a righteous sinner. Trust in Christ. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Again and again, I won't dive into the rest of the Psalms, but you know the Psalms. Many scholars believe that that Psalm chapter 2 is the companion of Psalm chapter 1, helping us helping really to reveal the theology of the Psalter. Notice how in Psalm chapter 2 ends with these words, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. It's just another way of saying the same thing. You want to know who the blessed are? The blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, the emphasis of Psalm 1 is on those who are blessed because they are rightly related or find their refuge in him. Psalm 2 looks at it from the other side of the coin. It is the wicked. Most of Psalm chapter 2 is God's dealing with the wicked. And I'll save that for next week. So who are the blessed in Psalm 1? They are the people of God. They are not perfect. They still sin, but they hate their sin. They confess their sin. They are forgiven of their sin. And what I want you to see, beloved, is that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of this psalm is for you. This is for you. You are among the blessed of the Lord. You are one of them if you know Christ. But what does does the word blessed mean? He starts off by saying, blessed is the man. By the way, Blessed is the man. Now we know who, who is blessed in a different way. He is the man. Uh, interesting, he doesn't say the king. He'll say that in other places, you know, speaking directly to the king or to the king's children, uh, especially in Proverbs. But here it is, blessed is the man. What, what is the man? Not referring to Jesus. Here's not referring to the Son of God. The man. Who's the man? Man is just a common term. It just means Everybody. If, if you are forgiven, then you are this man. You don't, have to, you don't have to go to seminary to be this man. You can be a milkmaid. You can, be, you can build aircraft. You can be a housewife. You can be a child. You can be a man. You can be a woman. You can be Jew. You can be Gentile. You, just the man. If you are a human being and you're alive, you can be blessed of God. But let's talk about what is, what is blessed. What, what does the word mean? The word blessed literally means happy. It means happy. In the Old Testament, however, the word had a much deeper meaning. To say that one is blessed is to use covenant language. Covenant language because when God established his covenant with Israel, he promised that, he, that they would be uniquely and personally blessed by him. Uniquely in the sense that they would be blessed by him in a way that none of the other nations would be blessed. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 13, God, as he's rehearsing through Moses the covenant, he says, you will be blessed. Uh, Blessed will be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your grain, the fruit your, your oil and your herds. And he just goes on and on and on. You'll be blessed when you come in. You'll be blessed when you go out. You'll be blessed when you rise. You'll be blessed when you sleep. You'll be blessed when you die. 
It's just blessing, 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 blessing. Along with the warning, if you turn your back on me for other gods, you will be cursed. Be cursed. Psalm 16, just to stay in the Psalms. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. They shall multiply. And isn't it interesting that Israel turned their back on God? They worship Moloch and Baal and, and the other gods. They're always in the high places, under every green tree, playing the harlot with other gods. And so God curses them, as he promised in the covenant. They get carried off in the captivity, and, and the northern kingdom of Israel got destroyed, never to return. And, um, and then there is this period where the, where the result of the curse is that they are left alone. And God doesn't speak through a prophet for 400 years. And then a child is born. And then he grows. And 30 years later, this child becomes a rabbi. And he preaches his first sermon. And what is the first word of his first sermon? Blessed. Blessed. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, right? You're all looking at me funny like, what are you talking about? <clears throat> you know the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he goes on and on. Blessing, blessing, blessing. I have come to bless I have come to bless all of the promises that God has promised you in the old covenant will be fulfilled. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There are eight blessings in Jesus' first sermon. To be one of God's people by grace through faith is to be one who is uniquely blessed of God. You may not feel blessed this morning, but you are, regardless of how you feel. If you're a follower of Christ, you are the special object of his blessing. Upon you, he pours out through Christ, John says, grace upon grace. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing, where? In Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are. You have everything that belongs to Christ. The unbeliever, however, does not know the special blessing of God. Rather, he's under God's curse. But he is under God's curse not because he's committed some unforgivable sin. No, the wicked are so called wicked simply because they deny the most obvious and important reality in the universe. Namely, that there is a God and we are accountable to him. And that's why they are called the ungodly. They don't believe in God. Or at least they act as if they don't believe in God. They simply live as if there is no God. They are ungodly. The ungodly man can be someone who goes to church. Doesn't have to be an axe murderer. Doesn't have to be a criminal. He could be someone who goes to church. He could be here right now. And right now, some of you are thinking, gee, I wish Brother Bob were here because he needs to hear this. I hope you're saying, Lord, could it be me? Could it be me? He may be the kind of person who is kind to the poor. He may be faithful to his employer. 
His greatest sin, however, is that he gives no part in his life to God. God has no, another way to say that, God has no part in his life. He simply lives as seems best to him without any consideration of the God who created him. And this is what it means to be ungodly, or the word that we don't like to use, wicked. God says that is wicked. To reject God is the pinnacle of wickedness. This, beloved, is the two kinds of people. There are the righteous and the wicked. Secondly, there are two alternative worldviews. Notice how the author describes this distinction in verse 1. The man or woman whom God blesses does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The word walk here means to go with the flow. It's really interesting. You open up the Hebrew um, dictionary and there it is. You go with the flow or something close to it. The word is for, uh, the world is forever giving counsel that is contrary to the word of God. I mean, every aspect of the world, it seems, is giving counsel, giving counsel, giving counsel, giving counsel. You turn on the TV, first commercial pops up. It's giving you counsel. You need this car if you're going to be happy. You need this drink, Pepsi, Coke, Mountain Dew, if you are going to quench your thirst. Um, You need a vacation or you're going to die from exhaustion. (laughs) I think a number of you believe that. The world is constantly giving us counsel. And I realize that sometimes, I mean, even a broken clock can be right twice a day. So sometimes the counsel is good. Most of the time, the counsel is unbiblical. He's saying, be careful of the counsel of the wicked. Don't go with the, wor- with the flow. The world says, here's a bit of counsel. If the cashier gives you too much money, you should keep it. I mean, somewhere along the way, another cashier is going to take too much money. Or if you believe the government is taking too much of your money, it's okay to cheat on your taxes. Don't give them what belongs to you. Or if you need some entertainment, little immorality on the internet's no problem. I mean, come on. Or if you need to make a sale, it's okay to lie a little bit about the product or about the price. If you open your car door and accidentally ding the car next to you, I mean, really bad, this actually happened to us, and uh, it's the counsel of the world would be, get back in your car, <laughs> leave and act like nothing happened. They'll never know. I mean, we live to please ourselves We live to get the best for ourselves. We live to make sure nobody takes things that we love away from us. And so this is the counsel of the world. But the righteous man does not go along with such counsel, no matter how many others may do so. I was thinking about this, and I thought, what if you were Noah? Can you imagine? What you doing, Noah? 
I'm building an ark. What's an ark? It's a boat. What's a boat? <laughs> uh, the Lord is going to send rain, and um, everyone's going to die, except for those who get in the boat. Sure they are, Noah. For a hundred years, he preached the gospel. Get into the boat and be saved. Get into the boat and be saved. Get into the boat and be saved. Just a little side note on that. You know what this area of our church is called? Anybody know? It's called the nave. The nave. This is where the people sit to hear the preaching of the word. It's separate from other parts of the sanctuary in Reformed churches, old Reformed churches, they were in the form of a crucifix, the cross, and so you had this one section where the people sat, and then you had a branch that went this way and this way, and, and one on the back, and if you could see it from the sky, it would be the shape of a cross. And that one part where everybody sat was called the nave. And the reason it was called from the nave is because it, nave comes from a Latin word, it is a Latin word, uh, from which we get our English word, navy. It referred to, it was a nautical term, and it was a reflection back on the days of Noah and the message that Noah preached, get into the boat and you will be saved. Get into the church in Christ and you will be saved. Um, the righteous man doesn't go along with such counsel no matter how many other people do, no matter if the whole culture is telling you, accept this kind of immorality or that kind of immorality. This is the way it's going. You can't stop progress. If you don't, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, you're something else. And you feel that pressure in our culture. But the righteous man, the blessed man, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't go with the flow of the wicked people who are around him. Nor does he stand in the paths of sinners. To stand means to remain among them or to present oneself in service to them. It is standing as a servant to them. Um, now we're, we're getting a little deeper. And this is, this is not only a description this is at least tacitly counsel for us. First, you'll find yourself walking, going with the flow. Next, you'll find yourself standing and serving them. Nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. To sit in the Hebrew means to dwell with. It is to take your seat in the assembly of like-minded people. Scoffers are those who mock and ridicule the things of God, and by sitting with them, you become one of them. And he's not saying here that the blessed man is tempted to do that. I'm just saying the reality is all of us who are the blessed of God are tempted. And we need to be watchful of ourselves and our children. And there's so many ways that that fleshes out. But that's not this sermon. Let's continue. There seems to be this dangerous progressing at work here, if you begin accepting some of the counsel of the wicked, it won't be long before you find yourself standing in the paths of sinners. So it should be no surprise that sometime later when you wake up, you realize that for, for some time you've actually taken your seat and have begun feeling quite at home with those 
who scoff at the notion of God, the teaching of God's word. The worldview of the wicked, the worldview of sinners and scoffers interprets the world not through the lens of God's word, but through the lens of their own desires. What do I want? And what does the culture around me want? And I want to stay up with the culture. And so where are we? That's where I want to be. And if you struggle with fear of man at any level, you're going to be tempted to just go along with that flow at the office, among your friends, at your hobby, wherever you encounter people that you know. I was reading Spurgeon on this, and he said, therefore, be careful who your friends are. And beloved, I, I, would just, I would be even more specific. May it not be said of you that your best friend is an unbeliever. You say, that's really narrow. Yep. And we are warned against that again and again and again in Scripture. Yes, be their friend. Yes, love them. Yes, serve them. But they shouldn't be your intimate companion. Um, Those who are blessed are careful about this. The blessed of God, the righteous man. Notice verse 2. He, he is not scoffing. He is not walking. How does he see it? It does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of those who scoff at God. Rather, notice the contrast, only two kinds of people. This kind of person, his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, he, what's the word? He meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. The most profound difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that while the believer, the wicked, interprets the world through the lens of his sinful desires, the blessed or righteous man interprets the world through the lens of Scripture. He delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in the law of the Lord. The word law here, uh, is it referring to the Ten Commandments? It includes that. Is it referring to the first five books of the Bible? Yes, it includes that. In fact, this word in the Hebrew is Torah. That would lead you in that direction. But Torah simply means the teaching. The teaching. God's teaching. God's revelation. Whatever that may be. And so we have God's revelation in the Old Testament. We have God's revelation in the New Testament. It is the teaching. The righteous man loves the teaching of God. Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice. Right? Their ears go up when they hear it. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they what? They follow me. They're not going with the flow. They're following me. They're learning me. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The blessed man meditates on the teaching of the Bible day and night. You're meditating on something. Day after day, what is it? What consumes your mind? What consumes your thoughts? To meditate means to ponder, to think deeply about something. Charles Spurgeon distinguishes between reading God's word and meditating on it. He's, uh, he's warning us from the 1800s. Be careful that you don't just read your Bible. Because the command is not so much to read the Bible, although you should do that. 
you should meditate on God's word. What's the difference? So here's how he says it in the way that only Spurgeon can. He writes, reading reaps the wheat. Meditation threshes it, grinds it, and makes it into bread. Reading is like the ox feeding. Meditation is digesting when chewing the cud. It is not only reading that does us good, but the soul inwardly feeding on it and digesting it. That's meditation. So in Eastern mysticism, meditation is you empty your mind. Empty your mind. And you sit there, and that's why they're going to sit there and go, hmm. Right? Gives them something to do to empty their mind. It's mindless. Nowhere in Scripture are you ever told to empty your mind. You are to fill your mind. Fill your mind with the truth. Meditating on Scripture means that you take a portion of Scripture and you think well and hard on it. Listen, uh, I, I know there's an awful lot of you here who read a lot of Scripture. And that's good. You should be reading a lot of Scripture. We all should be reading a lot of Scripture. But if you're reading your 10 chapters a day and you're getting that done, I mean, that's wonderful. It gives you an overview. But if that's all you're doing and you're never taking a, a word, a, a verse, a paragraph and plead with God, help me to understand this. Feed me, teach me. Take me to the depths of this text, and tomorrow maybe this text, or maybe tomorrow I'm coming back as I want more. I've been in Psalm 16 now, it seems, for months. And it is so rich, so very, very rich. And yes, I'll move on. And there are other texts. When, I, when I'm in the morning, when I'm having my quiet time or devotions or whatever you want to call it, I love to read large portions of Scripture, and I may read. I'm in, right now I'm in Second Chronicles, so I'm going to read um, a, a couple of chapters or a few chapters, but then I'm going to take my pen and my little 99-cent college rule uh, composition book, and I'm going to pick one thing about what I read and write about it. I'm just writing. What does this mean? How does this apply what, what is the author thinking here? What is he saying? Why? How does this fit into the context? It's not really Bible study. It's just me responding to the text of Scripture with my pen so that my mind slows down, so that I can stay focused for five minutes on a truth of the Bible. And it's amazing how you can come away five or ten minutes later so enriched by the Word of God because you've meditated on it and haven't just read it. You are not commanded in Scripture to memorize it, but we are commanded to meditate on it, to meditate on Scripture. And I hope that you're doing that as part of your um, walk with the Lord. The word meditate literally means, you ready for this? To moan. Yeah, like that. And that's exactly what it means. Did you hear that? There's like three of you went, hmm. <laughs> and you know what? When Psalm, uh, was it, what was it, 139? It was read this morning? And you're reading that. My family memorized that. We med- meditated on that for months and memorized it years ago when the, when the kids were real young. 
And, uh, and I still remember it, except you're reading it out of a different version. And as you were reading it back there, I'm going, hmm, oh, that is so good. It's, what is that? It's meditating. It's responding. It's responding. It's not all of meditation. And when we come to discover the meaning of a text and how it should be brought to bear upon my life, the righteous man says, hmm, Yes. It's an expression of delight in the weightiness and impactfulness of a particular scripture. In this sense, the righteous man can often say with David, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He didn't have an iPhone, he didn't have that kind of distraction. But he had pieces of scripture. In fact, the kings of Israel were commanded, when they became king, first thing they had to, do, had to do was take a pen and a bunch of paper and write for themselves a copy of God's law. And so David had, David had pages of scripture. Oh, how I love your law, Psalm 1997. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When you think of the Bible, when you think of reading the Bible today or tomorrow morning, do you think of it as, as just a discipline you've got to get done because that's what Christians do? John Piper appropriately warns, never reduce Christianity to a system of demands, resolutions, and willpower. It has to do with what we delight in, not just what we grit our teeth to accomplish. The difference between the righteous and the wicked It's the difference between two alternative worldviews. It's the lenses. A worldview is the lens by which you interpret the world you see and experience every day. And the one who is walking with God, who's not walking in the counsel of the wicked, but walking in the counsel of God day and night and meditating on his word, he's thinking all the time, hmm, there's a problem. I wonder what scripture says about that. Hmm, how are we going to resolve that biblically? Oh, there's a problem. There's an argument. Hmm. How do I respond right now to the person who's angry at me? How do I do that biblically? Lord, remind me of a text. Lord, remind me of your counsel. It's meditating on God's word. And sometimes as you're ministering to other people, you're engaged in personal ministry, you're discipling, and someone will say something and you'll go, oh, that was good. I am going to use that. And uh, I'll tell you one. I don't want to embarrass anyone here, but one time, Years ago, when the Cups lived here, um, I was talking to Jen on the phone. And one of the kids was interrupting the phone. And she said, hold on a second. And she turned, I don't know what child it was. Don't worry, children, I don't remember which one. And she said, honey, I'm sorry, but you must honor your mother. Where'd she get that? (laughs) That's like in the top ten, right? (laughs) You must honor your mother. I still remember that. And I thought, that's good. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to use that. That's Bible. It's the Word of God. I never thought to actually say that to my child. Here's what the Word of God says. Now I'm reminding you of it. You must honor your father, and you must do it now. And I usually have done that w- relative to my wife. I'm sorry, son. You must honor your mother. You must honor your mother. 
and we learn from each other and your mental concordance begins to grow as you hear the word and as you think about the word and you, you respond to it. Yes, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. They follow me based not on their impressions, but on what I have said to them. It's responding by the word that you hear. So there. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is the difference between two alternative worldviews. Thirdly, the psalmist offers two contrasting descriptions. Verse 3, this one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Here's what he's like. Metaphor. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, And all that he does, in all that he does, he prospers. In all that he does, he prospers. The first description of of this man is that of a beautiful, healthy, fruit-bearing tree. And isn't that compelling when you think of what Jesus' goal for you is? Remember when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear what? Much fruit. Where did he get that idea? You know where he got it? Um, Maybe from Jeremiah 17, which I wanted to look at and we just wouldn't have time. But maybe from Psalm 1. I mean, he wrote it, so probably both, right? (laughs) This is what the blessed, righteous man, his life is like. The word planted, now listen to this. The word planted means transplanted. It means transplanted. It is a picture of what happens to one who repents of their godlessness and places all their hope in God. God uproots them from the dry, parched, lifeless ground where they have been living and transplants them into a new place. Now, what is that place? Well, that place is described as a place where there are streams, plural, right? This is what he says. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, interesting, again, is the word streams. It literally means canals or water courses or artificial channels. This is a farmer. God is the farmer. He's raising these fruit trees. And one day he takes this little sap that's been growing out here on the side, out in the desert area, and he pulls it out of the ground and he goes over where he's dug these two channels of water and he plants it right between them. So they have an abundance of provision. And so the psalmist says in, is it 63? You cause us to drink from the river of your delights. The river of your delights. It's a picture of a farmer taking a tree that probably, it doesn't have much hope of life if it's just left where it is, and transplants it to a place where nutrients abound, where it can grow strong so that it can bear much fruit. And apparently it works. Every tree that God plants bears fruit, right? Every tree that belongs to God bears fruit. Jesus told the parable. He said, you know, he's a couple of places, one place where he was walking with the disciples to Jerusalem and he sees the fig tree had no fruit, had beautiful leaves, no fruit. And what did Jesus do to the tree? Cursed it. The only time Jesus used his power to curse anything. As an illustration, this is Israel, I think is, is the meaning. Israel, beautiful. Gold everywhere. 
no spiritual fruit. Curses the tree. It's exactly what God did to them and has done again. He tells the other story, going, into, going out to his orchard, and he sees this, this tree and um, doesn't have any fruit. And he tells his workers, cut it down and throw it in the fire. And they say, please, master, give us some time. We'll dig around it and we'll fertilize it and we'll work on it. And next year, no fruit, we'll cut it down. And apparently the master agreed to that. But the whole point of it was, if you're not bearing fruit, there's probably no life. If there's life, there's fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no life. And so here he is, this blessed man. He is blessed because the father has taken him like a struggling little sprout, pulled him up from the ground in which he would die and plants him between two streams of water. What kind of fruit does he bear? All kinds of fruit. All kinds of godliness. All kinds of godliness. He bears the fruit of the Spirit. For one, actually for nine, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's not all the fruit of the Spirit. It also bears humility, honesty, purity, integrity, truthfulness, worship, generosity, perseverance, compassion, sacrificial service. All of these things, anything that is true of God in his character, any of the communicable attributes of God, those attributes of God that he shares with us, not like omniscience, he doesn't share that, not like omnipresence, he doesn't share that. Those are the things that we want and we spend all of our time on. But we're supposed to be focused on learning to love and be patient and pure and having integrity and working hard and perseverance. And those who are planted by God between the streams of water, they bear much fruit. This is what meditation on God's word will do to you. Meditating on God's word will cause you to bear much fruit. It will change you. It'll, it'll make you more like Jesus. No wonder the psalmist concludes that in all that he does, he prospers. This was the same promise the Lord gave Joshua. Remember Joshua 1? Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. He's meditating on it, right? Oh, it means, by the way, meditation means mutter, to mutter as well. Another translation of it. If you were going to an ancient library, the library wouldn't be saying, shh, shh, no talking, no noise. What you would hear, and the few people who were in there, they had their scroll out, and you would hear them, they're reading they're murmuring, they're meditating. And so the Lord appears to um, Joshua and he says, this book of the law, the Torah, the teaching, the training, the instruction, shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Same message, right? You shall meditate it on, on it day and night so that you will be careful to obey all that is written in it. For then you will make your way, what? Prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, does that mean you're going to get that car you want? Does that mean your bank account is going to poof like you want it to? You know, suddenly, miraculously? No. What it means is 
Everything that God wants you to do and be, you can do and become. Now, this is really, this is really encouraging because there are parts of me that need to change. And there are areas in your life that need to change. And I've talked to enough of you to know it's really frustrating for you and for me to see that sin and you think, man, am I ever, am I ever going to beat this thing? Or at least am I ever going to get enough handle on it that it's not ruling my life? Answer, yes. It is possible. But you've got to do it God's way. Are you meditating on his word day and night? If you want to be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that bears its fruit and its season, its, we- its leaf doesn't wither, that's, that's beauty. And whatever he does, he prospers. You've got to meditate on the word. You've got to meditate on the word. I mean, if you're not, I mean, prayer is like breathing. You hold your breath too long, you die. Reading scripture is like eating. It's not good to go on a spiritual diet. You should be appropriately gorging yourself in the banquet of the word, day and night, day and night. Those who meditate on God's word in order to bring it to bear on the practical questions of life and just to lead their souls into worship are men and women who are especially blessed of the Lord. And that doesn't mean that God will, will make you rich or grant you that promotion. It does mean that you will be successful in everything he wants you to do. Successful in battling temptation. Successful to beat that stubborn habit. Successful to find a way to give to the needs of others though you feel like you have nothing to give. God makes all grace abound so that you, having all sufficiency in everything, will have an abundance for every good work. Successful, <clears throat> successfully offering real wisdom to one who needs counsel. Successfully sharing the gospel with that lost friend or relative or coworker. Successfully loving your spouse as Christ loves the church. In whatever you do, you will prosper. You will prosper. And you will prosper in ways beyond that that God doesn't promise, but that he loves to give. The wicked, however, verse 4, let's see, verse um, 4. The wicked are not like that. They are not the blessed. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Uh, Not much said here about them. The Hebrew says, not so the wicked A very sharp, emphatic contrast. Not so the wicked, far from being like a tree that is transplanted between streams of water, the godless wicked are like chaff which the wind blows away. Chaff is the part of the wheat plant that is good for nothing. It's rootless, weightless, worthless. It's a husk. It doesn't take much to disperse it. It simply gets carried away by the wind to no place in particular. What they would do is they would take the wheat and they would bind it in stalks. They would go up to the threshing area. They would take those stalks and they'd beat them on the ground, on stone preferably. Or they would thresh it with a threshing sledge or something to just just pulverize it. And they would pulverize it down into a pile of uh, just mush and dry mush, if that's possible. And then they would take a, a fork 
And they would always, they'd always do this as, in as high a place as possible to get as much wind as they could. And they would take it and they would just throw it up in the wind. They'd throw it up in the wind. And the grain would be heavier than the chaff. And so the wind would take the chaff away. One time I was, I was with my father-in-law uh, on the farm in Kansas and he had one of his hired hands was running the combine. And I didn't know much about combines, but it was harvest time for the wheat. And, uh, and he was kind of explaining things to me. And I said, what's that stuff coming out of the back of the combine? And he explained to me, uh, actually, he didn't explain it first. He said, uh, you ever read Psalm 1? <laughs> he said, that is the chaff that the wind drives away. The combine takes that wheat and it pulverizes it. It, it shakes it and, it, and, and, the, and the grain falls down into a bin and, and all the chaff gets spun out of the back and this big rubber thing that would spin around and it would just blow it everywhere. It's the chaff which the wind drives away. This is how the psalmist describes the wicked who say in their heart, there is no God. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. Let us live for ourselves. Or as Psalm 2 says, the rulers, verse 2, the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want any restraining influence from God. We don't believe there is a God. And God is saying, that's worthless. People are like chaff. The important thing to see here is that the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, the righteous person bears fruit for God because he's healthy and strong. The godless, however, are useless to God. The contrast could be hardly, couldn't hardly be more stark. Two kinds of people, two alternative worldviews, Two contrasting descriptions and two different destinies. Just real quick on this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the, of the righteous. Um, why does it say will not stand in the judgment? I remember when I was young thinking, nobody wants to stand in judgment. I mean, nobody wants to be there before a judge. It's not what he's saying. He's saying stand in judgment as opposed to being knocked down. Stand in judgment, rather than being pronounced guilty and being taken away to jail. Therefore, the wicked will not stand. They will not be left standing. They, they won't have a leg to stand on in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There's going to be this congregation of the righteous. Those who love God and meditate on his word. They love to obey him. They're like the sheep who hear his voice and they know him and they just want to obey. There's a congregation of them. And he's saying the wicked, they won't stand and they won't be a part of that congregation. Why? Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The word knows here is a beautiful word. It doesn't mean to have knowledge of, to know about. It means to know intimately. The Lord knows you. The Lord knows your heart. He sees your love for Christ. He sees your desire to be pleasing to him in all things. He knows. He knows the righteousness that he is born in you. And so you see, while the Bible is rather a large book with many pages and many words, it's really quite simple. There are two kinds of people in the world. 
Those who have been forgiven of their sins, who love God and delight in his word, and those who delight in their sin and pretend that God is not there and despise his word. There are two distinct kinds of people with two alternative worldviews and two contrasting descriptions with two different destinies. The good news, however, is that if you find yourself in the company of the wicked, if you find yourself in the company of the wicked this morning, and that frightens you and breaks your heart. You know what God wants? God would willingly reach down and pull up your little plant from that dead soil and transplant you in a beautiful place between streams of water so you will bear fruit and be a beautiful, loving disciple of Jesus Christ. But you must come to Jesus on his terms. You must come by faith. You must be willing to admit that the only thing you have to offer him is your sin. Ask him for forgiveness. Confess your unbelief in sin. There's only two ways to live. There are only two final destinies. Which will be yours? I plead with you. If you don't know the joy of living for Christ... If you don't know the joy of knowing Christ, if you're looking around and you're thinking, I'm just here because I came for the wedding, or I'm just here because you know, a friend brought me here. I, I just, I've just never even been to church. I've always thought you people were crazy. Why do, you, why do you do that? And maybe now you know. We love God. We love his word. It is not constricting. It is life for us. And it will be life for you if you believe, if you trust it, if you receive. Here's what Jesus said. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide that le- uh, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I pray that you will be one of the few. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this description of your people, those who do not go with the flow, but who stand upon your word and find delight in your word. Father, be glorified in us as we seek to be more faithful to eating and drinking your word, to nourish us and cause us to grow, to teach us to know Christ and follow him, and live his life for your great glory and for our own joy, we pray. Amen.